this throw over the fence mentality and the MQL mentality, I think it's broken. I just think you have to have shared goals. Okay, look at the end of the day, like the thing we're trying to do is drive revenue. And I still to this day look for marketing folks who think that way. Because if they don't, it's really easy to become adversarial with sales and do the finger pointing thing. And so that relationship, in my opinion, is what either allows you to succeed or, or to, to fail. I met Nico Datto when he was an executive VP of marketing at Podium. When he joined Podium in 2015 as their seventh employee, they were a review platform for SMBs. At the time, they had under a million in revenue and their best growth channel was knocking on doors. Over a seven-year period, Nico helped grow Podium to a multi-product lead conversion platform with over 100 million in revenue. Welcome to Grow & Tell, the show where revenue leaders tell the growth stories behind successful companies. I'm your host, Alex Krakov. Today, Nico is the CMO of Entrada, a property management software provider. They just threw a massive user conference where Weezer performed. In today's episode, we'll discuss what went into organizing that conference, plus how Podium grew through webinars and industry trade shows, the two most important relationships every marketing leader should have, why MQLs are a deceptive metric, and why you shouldn't sleep on Utah as a tech hub. I always love talking shop with marketers, so I hope you enjoy our chat. So I'd love to start today's conversation with your time at Podium, where I think you joined as like the seventh employee and when the company was under a million in revenue. And I think you spent seven years there and grew the team to like over 65 people and hundreds of millions in revenue. But I'd love to kind of go back to the beginning. Can you talk yeah. about what it was like when you joined Podium and how did Eric, the CEO, kind of recruit you to, to the company? Yeah. So you'll find some things out there around Podium in, in its first office, which is called the bike shop, which it was like legitimately this space above a bike shop in Provo, Utah. And in the summer, it was wicked hot. In the winter, it was wicked cold. And most of the best stories around the early days of Podium kind of come from this office, which is where we like initially got to probably 15, 20, 30 employees before we finally moved. But maybe backing up a little bit, I had been working for another software company here in Utah and I'd gotten some outreach from a local venture firm, uh, which is now Album Ventures. Sid Cromenhook uh, had reached out and was like, Hey, I know you don't know me, but I've got this company. They're called Rep Drive. That's what they were called at the time. And you should meet the two founders. I think there's some early product market fit. Like, just come have lunch with them. Let's chat. And so I went to lunch with Eric and Dennis, the two founders. And super quickly, you know, I kind of came to the conclusion that these guys had a ton of passion. And it was something I was really interested in. At that time, it was just review collection on really like Google, a little bit on Facebook. And review collection was still really new. So it was kind of a trending area, if you will. But so I joined as the seventh kind of seventh employee, uh, first marketing person. When I came on, Eric was like, hey, we've been selling this thing door to door. And we think that is like really inefficient. We think we can sell this over the phone. We know a lot of other software companies have done it. Can you help us just figure out how to get leads and start selling those leads? So that's kind of like how it all started. And so how did you do that? How did you go about kind of like in those really early days, like you present you with this thorny problem of, all right, go bring in a bunch of leads. And there's so many different marketing channels, so many different yeah. places to start. Like, where did you start? So where I started there was really around in a few places. The first one was around email marketing, which I still believe pretty heavily in today. And what we did was a really, really targeted approach. I literally would go into Zoom Info. I had an SDR who had just been hired about the same time I was hired. I'd build a list of like 30 people 
and they were like dentists, tire shop owners, or car dealership GMs. And we would build this list and we'd create like a six email cadence. And the SDR and I just sat next to one another. And we literally, our goal was just to start getting like one a day. We're like, let's just get one appointment a day out of these 25. We'd run that cycle through for like a week or two and then get another 25 and do the same thing. So we did a lot of that for a long time. And then the other thing I kind of mentioned, reviews are really, really new. So we started kind of saying, well, hey, no one knows about them. They don't know the benefit of them. So we started creating content around it. And most of the content that we created, because we found it was best consumed this way, was through webinars. And so we would use that same, those same lists to go create just really random content on here's why you should get reviews as a dentist. And we just kind of rinsed and repeated that over and over and over again and then started expanding out past that. But for the first like six, eight months that I was there, that's really what we did just with the goal of get one appointment a day and then we'd get one and we'd do that really consistently and we'd say, okay, now let's get two. We got to the point where this SDR by himself was doing probably five or six appointments a day. Then we're like, we should probably hire another one and keep expanding from there. And you've mentioned like there's so many different types of like SMB verticals, right? There's dentist, HVAC, auto shop. How did you think about that challenge and which verticals to go after? And then I'm curious, like, was the messaging the same for each one or did you have to kind of tailor it? Was like, did dentists care about something really different than HVAC or was it sort of like all the same messaging? Yeah, it's a great question. So Podium was originally founded because Eric, who's still the founder and CEO today, his dad had a tire shop or a couple of tire shops up in Calgary. And that is where they originally found some traction was with tire shops. And then they found a little bit of traction with dentists and a little bit of traction with auto dealers, but not significant anywhere. And so we kind of had that baseline to start working from. And then we just started going deeper on what each industry cared about. And what we actually found is probably 60 to 70% of what they cared about was the same, which is, hey, look, like this is my livelihood. I need to make more money, which means I need more customers or I need great feedback around these customers. And that was like issue number one that they were trying to solve for. And then from there, probably the remaining 40 or 50% was kind of odds and ends that were industry specific. So like for auto dealers, they would say, hey, we actually care about a ton of the feedback within the review because we have like 12 sales reps. I don't know everything they're doing. And obviously, this is before Gong. This is before all these other sales tools that who knows if they've made their way there. But it was like a way for them to check in on their sales reps, right? So it really did differ by industry on kind of the long tail of the benefit. But the core benefit was, how do we just get more customers? And we would create webinars that were geared right toward a dentist and right toward an auto dealer. We did that at the very beginning. And even as we expanded years later, we still had what we called vertical marketing managers. And those folks were really focused on a single vertical and knowing that vertical and tailoring messaging to that vertical and doing channel optimization around that vertical. So the vertical thing never really left. Very cool. Very cool. And then like, how long did that kind of outbound plus webinar strategy last? And I'm curious, like what the next evolution looked like? Because I know like as the team grew, you kind of expanded into more like proper revenue marketing and different channels. When did you kind of start to make that shift and test other channels? I've been gone from Podium now for like a year and a half, almost two years. But I do know they still use some of those same channels that we used back then. So it never really died down. I think that was one of the secrets of Podium is we just didn't have any ego around using what was really cool and trendy. We were kind of like, hey, look, at the end of the day, it's pretty simple. All of us get our paychecks and get bonuses if we get more people coming into the funnel and buying our product. 
So we kept it super, super simple. But that core strategy that I kind of discussed, we probably did that really heavily for a year and a half to two years. And then we kind of got that motion down. And I actually remember hiring someone. I think we were actually going through Y Combinator. So I might have actually hired them in year one. I remember hiring someone and saying, hey, this is the motion. It works really well. I just need you to take this. They're like, perfect. They did that. And then we went and hired someone else to come and start doing, you know, digital ads and all of that. So we started expanding out past that probably about a year and a half after. Another thing that we did that became a really great program for us and back to the like kind of unsexy activity was trade shows. Like by the time I left Podium, we were doing like 350 trade shows a year. Damn. And like, yeah, it was crazy. And not all of them, actually like 95% of them were like dinky little 10 by 10s at the Minnesota Dental Association. And we would just do those over and over and over again. And again, we'd set goals. We'd say, hey, this is going to cost us eight grand to go do all in for airfare, hotel, the booth, power, whatever. We just need to triple our money or quadruple our money. I actually think it was 4X within three months. And if we did it and it worked, we'd go back to that show next year and we just keep doing it over and over and over again. So it was really kind of just taking on kind of a channel at a time and saying, this works, let's get it to a good spot, pass it off, find something else, get it to a good spot, pass it off. And we just started to feel this compounding effect of things that actually worked versus wasting money on things that didn't. I love like the rinky dink uh, trade show strategy because I think everyone wants to go to these like big flashy Las Vegas, whatever trade shows. And like they're such a scene, you know, I did them for Lattice and HR people. But yeah, the little ones are like where, I don't know, the value is where you can kind of mine for gold and like not where all your competition is going. So it's a really good strategy. I agree. Like, and look, like the company I'm at now in Trotta, they do events better than anyone I've ever seen. And they did before I got here as well. And they have massive booths and everything. But what's funny is we were just going through some of our trade show strategy recently. And they're like, hey, some of these little rinky dink shows still matter for us. And I'm like, it's not surprising. You can go generate a pretty good ROI off of something that no one really wants to do, but it actually works relatively well. Yeah, I love it. Um, Did you ever experiment with direct mail? Because I feel like that would play well with the SMB market and kind of this outbound strategy you're running. We did experiment with direct mail. We would do a lot of flyers, particularly around new product announcements too. So if we launched a new product or new feature, we'd send them to existing customers. We would also do direct mail really targeted towards a specific vertical. And what's interesting about direct mail is it's similar to like SiriusXM or podcast ads. Like you can put, go to doc.us forward slash SiriusXM on that mailer or in that ad, and you're going to get like 20 people that go there. But what you start seeing is in your organic traffic or your direct traffic, you'll start to see these trends that you really can't attribute back really perfectly. And that's kind of how we ran direct mail. That's how how we ran some of these other channels. It's like, hey, you're just kind of going with, we're 70% confident here. But every time we turn it off, we see a dip. Every time we turn it on, we see it climb. Yeah, same experience we had at Lattice. We would try and do, you know, billboards and these like big multi-channel campaigns and, and different, and then we would sort of do it in these different cities and then you could just see the lift on the website and you could see the lift in the leads and different things like that. And you know, it's hard to attribute a billboard, but you sort of knew like, where's all this coming from? It's coming from this multi-channel channel strategy. So yeah, I don't know. It's it's hard. You know what's so funny though is I've talked to some performance marketers here at Podium, other places, and you'll say, Hey, you just have to trust this process a little bit. I promise it works. They're like, yeah, but they're so quantitative, some of them. They're like, hey, look, like I can't see the direct tie. I'm not going to put money there. 
And so it's it's funny that you saw that because I've actually witnessed more or I've experienced more people are uncomfortable with that than not. Yeah, no. And I think it comes from CEOs and CFOs. Like there's a mindset and people think like, oh, everything's perfectly attributable on the internet. And there's a whole generation of markers. And like, yeah, a lot of it is, but only like really digital ads and email marketing. And then like the rest of it is, you know, more traditional marketing and that stuff works really well too. So yeah, you got to take a leap of faith. And we found the stuff where we took a leap of faith, like perform better. It was way less transactional. There was way more leverage in the marketing spend. And it was things that like helped everything across the funnel, not just getting one uh, shitty Google ads lead, you know? Yeah, yeah. I totally yeah. agree. I totally agree. Yeah. But on this topic, like, so you invested a pretty good amount, I think, into radio and podcast ads, right? Like, so you're pretty confident, like they worked. And I guess, yeah, I don't know. What was your strategy behind that? Yeah, they did. Podcast ads, we were far more targeted with. So there are a bunch of niche or niche podcasts that have like I don't know, maybe a couple thousand followers max, uh, maybe even in the hundreds sometimes. And it might be a dental podcast or whatever it may be. And we would go to them and just be like, hey, we'll just give you like a thousand bucks if you'll let us sponsor all of your ads for the next month. They'd be like, great, perfect. This is our side gig. So we'll do that all day. So on the podcast side, we were much more targeted. Like we weren't going after the smart list of the world or Bill Simmons. Like those cost quite a bit of money and we just weren't comfortable with that. So we went far more targeted. On SiriusXM, we did find kind of our stations that worked really well. They were the stations you wouldn't expect. Sometimes it was like conservative talk radio, and it worked really, really well. And that was one of those things where we'd throw up a landing page with like forward slash whatever, and we'd get 10 leads from it. But it would have run for like three months. But we'd look at the traffic and my head of revenue marketing, who's with me at Entrada now, he would be like, trust me, it's working. I can't tell you exactly how much we're getting, but it's working. And uh, we just did that over and over and over again and took the leap of faith initially and it it ended up working out. Yeah. Love to switch gears a little bit and talk about kind of building the marketing team. Because you went from a team of one and then you, you know, it ended up kind of somewhere around 65 people. Like what were kind of those first few hires that you made? Maybe we'll start there. So I'd mentioned email marketing and webinars were really useful for us in the very beginning. So I just went and basically hired people who could take this thing that I had built a V1 of and said, can you build a V2 and then a V3 and then a V4? And then just kind of let them own that thing. So the first person I actually hired was a content marketer. He's also with me today at Entrada. And he just focused on webinars. He just made the webinar process and strategy and content really, really good. And then the second hire I made was a junior demand marketer who did a lot of the email marketing. And that person kind of took that and ran with it. And then I'd mentioned that we started finding success from trade shows. So I went and hired someone to come in and run the trade show strategy for us. And then at that point, I kind of had three people doing these really focused channel work. And I went and hired a director head of revenue marketing. And that one was a bit more opportunistic. I probably wouldn't have hired him or that position normally, but he was someone who showed up and was like, I love what you guys are doing. He'd already had a couple exits himself as a founder. It was like, I don't want this job. I don't want the head of marketing job. I just want to come in and have an impact. So I hired him and kind of just let him run as well. And then he started building out that demand team. It was around that time when I hired my first designer. And that first designer kind of was the only designer for another year or so. And it really took until maybe year three or four for us to start building out individual functions and 
adding product marketing and adding copywriters and adding videographers and all of that. And so we kept it really, really tight and really scrappy for the first probably two and a half, three years of my time there, even though we were growing really quickly. And by the time you left, what was kind of the department structure? Like who were maybe like your lieutenants under you and those sort of team leads? What did that look like? Yeah. So I'd had a revenue marketing, a VP of revenue marketing. I had a VP of product marketing. I had a VP of social and comms. We kind of merged those two together. I had a creative director and I had a project manager who reported in me. I never really wanted that role to report into an individual function because I felt like the kind of like Switzerland scenario of a project manager reporting into me kept everything true. And then I'm trying to think if I had anything else past that. I had about five or six people, but that was kind of the main structures. And we kept it that way most of the time. I mean, we had a brand function, we had a product marketing function, revenue marketing function, social and comms. Oh, and events. Events was the other one that reported into me. Makes sense. And then what was your relationship with the sales team? You mentioned a little bit early on how you were like pairing up with the SDRs, but like, yeah, how did marketing collaborate with sales? And yeah, what did that kind of look like? So it obviously evolved over time. I personally, to this day, think the two most important partnerships a, a head of marketing can have is the head of product and the head of sales. Hands down, those are the two most important relationships. And I was really lucky at Podium. Our head of sales, he's still there. His name's Than Hancock. He's amazing. He and I had a really good relationship. Uh, We still do. We text all the time. And we basically had said like, hey, look, we're in this together. If we had a revenue goal on an annual basis, how Eric, our CEO, would split it up is basically like, hey, Nico, you're responsible for 50% of the revenue coming in through inbound channels or some of the outbound channels. And then Than, you're responsible for the other 50% or whatever that breakdown was. And so Than and I really kind of made sure that we had a really strong relationship. We were really collaborative. We were chasing the same goals. And then the people underneath us are plus ones and then plus twos and plus threes were really tight as well. And it's something that you can't just force it to happen. Like you got to find people who want to be revenue focused. And you know, you and I talked about this. I remember like years ago at that dinner that you, Eric, Jack and I went to. And we just said like, hey, look at the end of the day, like the thing we're trying to do is drive revenue. And I still to this day look for marketing folks who think that way. Because if they don't, it's really easy to become adversarial with sales and do the finger pointing thing. And so that relationship, in my opinion, is what either allows you to succeed or to fail. Yeah. The way I think about it is just one team, one dream. You're not here just to drive MQLs or whatever made up, you know, metric you want. It's like about growing a business and revenue and you should all be incentivized at the end of the day to do that. And that's the nice part about startup equity and all that stuff is you, you should be there to kind of grow this big business. So yeah, I don't know. It blows my mind when people don't think about marketing from a revenue perspective, which is uh, yeah, it's a funny thing. I think you'd be shocked though. There's so many, like I do a fair amount of advising, like someone will pull me in and I'll go talk to the head of marketing or the sales and I'm like, hey, do you work with the, each other? And they're like, no, not really. It's like, they provide us MQLs. I'm like, well, that's part of the issue is like the throw over the fence mentality is totally broken. Yeah. And so you have to align those goals. We did that too. I'm sure you did something similar at Lattice, but my marketing folks on the revenue side, they were gold and comped off of accepted opportunities, like opportunities created because the MQL metric is just not, it's not a real metric in my opinion. Like, it's a leading indicator. It's very subjective. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just, it's subjective. So 
it's like, okay, what are those steps that allow us to create predictability and conversion rates down the funnel? And it's like demos or it's opportunities or whatever else it is. So I think that's a really good point. Like the throw over the fence mentality and the MQL mentality, I personally think, and someone could probably fight me and they'd probably win. I think it's broken. I just think you have to have shared goals. Yeah. I mean, I always thought like marketing's goal was pipeline, right? I mean, it's like, are we driving pipeline? That's at least close. You know, it's ultimately revenue, but the closest thing, okay, pipeline is like, you know, what I would report on to the board and talk about. And that's what we would goal ourselves around because it was at least like, okay, dollar amount tied to it. And it's like you know, connected to revenue. So yeah. I'm the exact same. I mean, you can't, you can't control everything past when pipelines created, right? Like sales reps are going to go run their cycles, but I totally agree. Like pipeline is most important. And then you mentioned the other really important relation uh, at the company was like head of product. And so I'd love to talk a little bit about product launches and how you went about doing that. Because I know Podium eventually went multi-product and expanded well beyond like online reviews. I think you had like website chats and feedback surveys. But I think one memorable one was like the payment launch. Can you talk about the decision to build payments and kind of how you went about that, that launch? Yeah. So the product relationship is incredibly important as well for multiple reasons. One is because you have to be able to understand exactly what the product is, what it does, and then articulate that in a way that allows sales to actually go sell it and drive revenue around it. And so working hand in hand with that product person really helps you kind of shape like, oh, we could position this feature this way. I understand what you're doing here. But by the way, so-and-so competitor does this. Like, Let's just make sure we keep thinking about that. And so that relationship is super, super important. For us, I had a couple of chief product officers that I had worked with uh, during my time at Podium. But by the time I left, I was working with a guy named John Foreman, who was the chief product officer at MailChimp for a long time. And John is like one of the smartest people, not even within product, but just smartest people I know. And he really kind of had helped accelerate some of the multi-product initiatives we had. He also came in and, and really kind of looked at the feature breakdown of each product and said, like, let's figure out how we get the connective tissues of all these things to work really well together. And to your point, we'd initially jumped from reviews to website chat. It was the web chat product. And that launch, I guess, backing up a second, going multi-product is super hard. Going from a single point solution to multi-product is so, so, so hard. And launching any product is kind of a gamble or bet. You can do all the research you want, but like it's still a little bit of a gamble and bet. We had gotten really fortunate with website chat. It had done really well, and it's a really popular product today. Like I bet if you go to a bunch of auto dealers sites or dental sites or tire shop sites or furniture stores online, you'll see Podium. You'll see it on some decent percentage of it. So we had done really well there. And then you know, after we'd done that launch, we'd said, okay, so what else do some of these business owners need? And one of the things we had thought was, well, hey, a lot of these people are using really archaic payment systems. And they're like, if you go into a tire shop, for example, they're using like a really shitty old credit card machine that they've probably had for like 10 years that some door-to-door person came in and sold them. And they haven't thought twice about it. It's not integrated into anything. It's putting off on a piece of paper. They then have to take that and go input the numbers into whatever CRM they're using. And so we'd said, we think we can make that process a lot smoother. We also think that there's adjacencies with things like review generation. So being able to send out a review invite after a credit card swiped or something like that, right? And so there were a lot of different connective tissues for us to decide to launch payments. And it was a really hard launch, but a really successful and satisfying launch because payments is a whole nother beast. It's not like you're dealing with a lot of different pieces that you've never dealt with before. But for me, it's one of the most satisfying launches I've had 
because it was so hard and it's such a beast to launch a product like that. And so what goes into that launch? Like who's leading it? Is it just a product marketing manager? And then like, how do you think about, yeah, even approaching a launch? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's definitely not one person. It's definitely, it's a team. So we had like a product person who was kind of a specialist on the payment side. That person kind of helped obviously lead the technical charge. We had a product marketing manager who was tied in with that person during the entire development lifecycle. We had, you know, obviously a chief product officer who was incredibly involved. We had sales folks who were trying to understand, okay, this might slow down our sales cycle a little bit. How do we make it a no-brainer? And I think that's actually the secret to a launch is you can't just like go build this thing in a silo on the product side or product marketing side and be like, okay, cool. Here's this thing. Good luck. We'll do like an hour-long training. Go sell it. It's a very iterative process. And I think you've probably heard a ton about like painted door tests of saying like, we're going to go just like test this thing even before maybe it's a real thing. That's something we did a lot of, which was, hey, if we had this thing, here's what it could do. How do you think about it? And it's not just product people on those calls. It's sales folks. It's marketing folks. And we're really starting to understand early on in the product development lifecycle what this looks like. And then that ends up allowing everyone to kind of come along on the journey and craft it together versus like making this thing and handing it over. Does that make sense? Yep. No, totally. And it's a really important point. And I think of like all of the, I mean, all the big launches at Lattice, I like to think we got right where it was like, okay, we had, we did what you described, but there was definitely so many little features wherever, where it was like tossed over the fence to the sales team. It's like, go sell this. This is how it works now. And it's like, ah, you know, we, you needed to like have a much better process of getting buy-in and enablement and education. Cause yeah, it's hard for sales folks to change their script and to change the positioning and to change all that stuff. That's, it's way easier said than done. So, well, yeah. you're better than me. I definitely did not nail every launch. I screwed up far more than I did anything right. But I agree with you. Like sales folks, it is hard. They get in a cadence. You'll get, you know, your very best sales rep and a sales leader will come in and be like, okay, everyone, we're going to watch how this sales rep does a demo because they're crushing all of you. Let's figure out how we emulate it. And what you'll find is like, they just have emotion. It's such emotion, like that talk track is 95% the same every time. So the second you just go like plop in a new product and it's like, hey, and by the way, we need a million dollars of this in revenue by the end of the quarter, that just throws even the best sales rep completely off. And so starting that process early allows them to start thinking about how they ease it in or even just say, hey, and by the way, we have a product launching at the beginning of Q2 and it does X, Y, and Z. Like that might be something you're interested in. And if they get that in their motion, by the time it actually launches, it's much easier to integrate. Yeah, no, it's, it's very true. On a personal level, like you had yeah. such tremendous growth at Podium. Like, what was yeah. that like for you? Like, how were you able to scale yourself? Yeah, it must have just been a, a crazy kind of uh, yeah journey for you on a personal note. Yeah, I appreciate that. I don't think I did anything magical, to be honest with you. I think that what it comes down to for me is I look for people who work hard. I feel like I worked hard. It's interesting. I had the opportunity of introducing a keynote speaker for one of our customers yesterday, Mike uh, Aruzioni, who was like the was one of the Olympic hockey players in the 1980s that had won the the winning goal against the Russians. I think it was against the Russians, or maybe it was Finland. And he had said something yesterday that, that stuck with me, and that's how I feel every day. He was like, "I was the captain of the team, but I literally thought every morning when I wake up, I'm like, I wouldn't be surprised if I get cut." And I think that's how I just always thought. And it, it, I keep that same mindset today. Whatever I did the day before, even if it was great, I'm like, 
I wouldn't be shocked if Eric or my now boss, Adam, who's the CEO, showed up and he's like, sorry, Nico, this is the end of the road. I'd be like, I get it. So I think keeping that mindset of never resting on whatever you did well and just staying hungry and staying almost healthily paranoid, I think was really help, healthy and helpful for me. Yeah, no, I think I had the same mindset. I think the mindset of like startups force you to be like that. And honestly, any companies, because the growth goals are bigger and the scale of the company is different and what you need to do from marketing perspective changes every six months or every year or whatever. And so it's like, you're always like asking yourself, can I do the next stage? Can I do the yeah. next thing? Am I ready for that? And like, yeah. And then you sort of need to have that internal motor to be like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to step up. I'm going to change how I do these things. And yeah, that's uh, the fun part of trying to scale with these companies. Yeah. Well, I, I bet you felt it at Lattice too, because I remember talking to, I think it was like the chief commercial officer at HubSpot at one point. And he had told me, he's like, I've been at HubSpot for like eight years or 10 years or whatever it was. And he's like, and I've been a part of 20 different companies. And what he meant by that was we reinvented the company every six to eight months. And Podium was the same way. And I actually think that's the case for any business. You have to just be comfortable with the change. People are going to come in and out, peers, managers, whatever it ends up being. Just be comfortable with the change and just know that whatever you did yesterday really doesn't matter today. And if it does matter today, it won't matter tomorrow because you can't rest on that thing. So I agree with you. I think the startup thing does force you to, to get that because especially when you're an early stage startup and the money is so sparse, you're like, hey, look, if I don't make this work, I know that there's not enough money to keep paying all of us. And so it does kind of force you to think that way. Yeah. Then it flips eventually. You're successful. You have a big marketing budget and then you need to spend it as fast and grow, right? Yeah. It's like a funny yeah. dynamic at some point that that changes. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. I'd love to spend some time talking about your current company, Intrada. You've worked yeah. there for like, I think, just under two years and it's very different than Podium. It is. You know, Intrada sells to property management companies. I mean, it's been around for, I think, 20 years. There's hundreds of millions of revenue. Very much an established company. Yeah. Can you talk about like why you joined Intrada and yeah. Um, yeah, what it was like when you first started? Yeah. So our CEO, he took the gig maybe three years ago, and he was actually the president at Podium for four, four and a half years. And he caught wind that I was leaving Podium. And he'd reached out to me and he's like, hey, I would really love to chat with you about maybe coming over here. And in my mind, I, at that point, I was like, no, I think I'm going to go back to a startup. Like, I like the startup phase. It's fun. I'm like, I'd like to do it one more time, maybe, before I go and do something a little larger. And then, you know, we met for lunch. He kind of walked me through the business. And super quickly, I was like, oh, I'd be an idiot not to join this business. Like, it is incredibly healthy. No one really knows how healthy the business is. It's a verticalized software play, which I really like. I think is really interesting. And it's fun to go deep in a vertical. And I have always been really, really drawn to businesses that have super real world impact, right? Like Podium was helping small business owners. I love that. Uh, here, we're literally like powering the thing that helps people have shelter, which is one of the staples in life. And so all of those pieces just really quickly kind of fell into place for me. And he was like, here's the only thing is the marketing team is really incredible at events. They're the best I've ever seen. There's not a ton past that. It's no knock on anyone. That's just like the channel that they created and they did really well with and they haven't really branched out past that. So you're going to have to come in and kind of create some of these other things. And that was also really intriguing to me. So, you know, when I came into the business, there's probably 20-ish marketers, a lot of them, you know, sitting on the brand side and the event side. And today we're still not much bigger. I actually would love to keep it as small as possible and spend the money on the revenue generating things like advertising events, etc. 
And so we're probably 30-ish, 32 people today. And I've come in and, you know, added a few other elements to marketing to kind of round things out, keep, you know, acquisition really kind of predictable and stable, uh, like demand marketing, like we didn't have any kind of demand generation function, built out the brand team a little bit so that we can just move faster and be a little bit more put together in, in how we move. And it's been a lot of fun. I've loved it. It's uh, it's an awesome industry and it's an incredible company. And so you, you mentioned you added demand gen. Yeah. What does that look like at Intrada? Because from, from my understanding, there's pretty big deal sizes, right? It's a pretty enterprise sale. Is it like ABM strategy you're running? And yeah, how do you think about what does demand look like at Intrada? So it's super interesting. It's across basically every market segment, really. So most of our business sits in the enterprise, long sales cycles, multi-million dollar deals, we're multiple touch points. But we also do sell to smaller owners and operators where we can actually do it over the phone, like with an inside sales team. And then we actually have a whole bunch of residents that obviously live in the properties that we support. And we also sell things to those residents as well, like resident insurance. Uh, There's something called deposit alternatives, rent reporting, etc. We actually just launched a new brand like a month or two ago called Homebody that's geared right toward those residents. So this demand marketing team is actually spanning all of those segments. They're focused on Homebody, which is for the residents. They're focused on the inside sales team. They're also focused on the mid-market and enterprise. And so the motions differ, obviously, for each one of those segments. That inside team is obviously doing a lot more inside sales, inbound leads. They're doing cold calling as well. Enterprise is a lot more relationship selling, like a lot of field events. Still doing a lot of like true enterprise type content. Like we just launched a Forrester report a month or so ago. And then on the homebody side for residents, you know, it's it's a lot of what you'd expect: direct mail, digital advertising, kind of all of that. So it really kind of spans the whole market, if you will. And you joined this company with an established marketing team who's mainly focused on events, which I want to talk about in a second. How did you go about building trust within the team and adding these different programs into the mix? And yeah, how did you think about that? Because that must be pretty intimidating where there's just like a bunch of humans who've been doing marketing a while. And it's like, okay, I'm the new boss. We're going to change how you approach it. How did you approach that challenge? It's hard. It really is hard, candidly. It's gotten easier, obviously, but it, it was really hard. I think there are a few elements to it. The first is we have a really great executive team who I think some of those people had come in before me and retrofitted some of the areas to which they felt really good about, right? Like I have some great people around me, like Jason Taylor is their CTO at Podium. He's kind of a long tenured CTO. He's the CTO here. Our chief product officer, Catherine Wong, was at Domo and then Adobe and Omniture. And she d- has done amazing things. Our CFO is at Pluralsight, Skull Candy, et cetera. So we've had really great people who've come in and done it. So I think for some of my people, they were like, okay, this is just marketing's time. Like we're going to go do what others have done. I also think I got really lucky because I walked into a handful of direct reports that were really great at what they did. Like my head of events, she's incredible. My creative director, incredible. My head of product marketing, incredible. So they did make it easier. With that said, there was still a lot of work to do around saying, here's why we're going to do this. And here's why it's going to make your life easier. Or here's what the impact is going to be. The thing I always go back to is the shared common goal, which is revenue. And I think that makes it super easy. So when I came in, I just said, hey, look, like we don't know exactly where our revenue is coming from. So we're going to put in place attribution. We are lumpy quarter over quarter. That's not fair for the sales team. That sucks for predictability. We need to figure out how to smooth this out. And so I just kind of explained these things and they're super smart, ambitious people. And they're like, okay, let's do it. So while it was really hard to get in place, I feel like I was fortunate. I had a team who was really receptive to it. 
Yeah. So it sounds like you really just showed your thinking around why you're making all these decisions, be super transparent, explain how it's going to impact the business. And then obviously that kind of builds trust and then get everyone on board. Yeah. And then I think that showing the quick results are really important. Like I talked to my team about this a lot. You have to do a little bit of internal marketing as well to be like, we did this field event. Look what it generated. We wouldn't have gotten that otherwise. We should do that again. And so just like showing those wins and the momentum, I think matter a ton too. And, you know, for any of the, haters, if there were any, I'm sure there were, but there are everywhere. They look at that and they're like, how do I argue with $30 million in pipeline? Like, yeah, obviously we keep doing that. So I think you're right. Showing thinking, but also showing results are kind of like the one-two punch that you need to use. And so you've mentioned, yeah, Entrada's longtime focus for marketing was around events, both smaller kind of field events and larger, you know, user conferences. And I think it was last month you did your like uh, Entrada Summit conference, which is like your big conference. Can you take us kind of behind the scenes of creating a giant user conference like that? What are the goals for it? What goes into it? How do you think about it? It's a beast. It is a big undertaking. So we wrapped up about a month ago. And I literally have a call in like two hours with my head of events uh, to start booking talent for next year. Start putting in the tent poles. And we've already booked the venue that we're going to be at for the next two years. Like It takes a lot of planning. That just goes to show like it never really stops. You finish and then you start back up. So it's a lot. With that said, like, again, a really great team who's doing 95% of the lifting. I'm just able to come in and poke holes and say, I don't think this is going to work or this is how we should think about this thing. But yeah, it's tough. I think for us, you know, we try to have a blend of it being entertaining, fun and educational. And so we have a lot of really great keynote speakers every single year. Like this year, we had Maverick Carter, who's LeBron James, like business partner and childhood best friend. We had Rashida Jones, we had Shay McGee, we had Nate Bargetzi, the comedian one night for entertainment, we had Weezer perform. So we really like focus on the entertainment side. But then on the flip side, we have a ton of breakout sessions that are really focused around the educational aspects. And I think it's a combination of our team, whether it be product folks, product marketers, whoever it is, running sessions. We have customer-led sessions. Silver Lake is one of our big investors and they have a really great AI team. And so we had one of their operating partners on the AI side come to a session, which was really popular. But we really try to find a balance between the two. But it also takes a village. Like it's a our weekly meeting around summit planning leading up to it for like the three or four months leading up to it is like honestly 25, 30 people because there's so many different moving pieces to make it work really, really well. But at the end, it's super worth it. It's really fun to see the result. And I'm curious, like how many people attended the event? But then you mentioned the results too. Like, is it mainly for like customers to get them to love your brand more and to keep spending with you? Or is it mainly to attract new prospects? Or is it a mix? Like, how do you sort of think about the relationship between those two audiences? It's both. It's for sure both. There's a kind of like legendary executive here in the Utah area. Her name's Corrine Clark. And I remember her telling me at one point, she's like, conferences are so funny because you're literally like, hey, why don't you buy a ticket from me, pay for your airfare, pay for your hotel to come and let us just entertain you and tell you about new things that are going on within the business. And so I think for us, like that's similar to how we've kind of structured these events is we're like, hey, look, like if you're invested in us and you want to understand what we're doing and what we're putting out there and you want to learn about how people are using our system, we'd love to have you. And if you do that, we're going to make it really useful for you. On the flip side, like for prospective customers, we want them to come and get a sense for us as a business, talk to our customers, 
see how much they love us. And we want them there as well. So it's really kind of a mix of the two. As far as how big it was, so this year was our biggest year with employees and everything else. We had right around like a thousand or twelve hundred people. And it's much smaller if you look at some of the other conferences out there. I mean, Dreamforce, I won't even talk about because that's in a different like universe. But like Qualtrics has thousands of people, right? Like they might even be like eight or ten thousand at this point. I don't know if we ever want to get to that size. I think we want to make sure we keep some intimacy. But at the same time, we want to make sure that people can kind of share in the education and entertainment. So we've kind of found our sweet spot. And how do you think about enabling the sales team around these events? Like, are they trying to set up meetings around the event? Or are they just sort of there as a friendly face, like to try to sell the product? How do you think about that? Yeah, they're for sure setting up meetings. They're having meetings. They're, they're doing like account reviews. They're talking about new products, etc. We also going into Summit, that's where we're launching a lot of new products and features or announcing them, right? And saying that they're coming in a certain time frame. So we're equipping them to be able to be able to talk to those things. But fortunately, Intrad is so funny. Our sales team is really incredible. A lot of them have been in the industry for a decade, two, three decades. And so they have incredible relationships. They love our customers more than any other company I've ever seen. And so a lot of it for them is, hey, we just want to see these people. We haven't seen them in a little while. We want to chat with them and just keep building that relationship. And what comes from that is, you know, ideally more revenue. But at the same time, even if it's not, like we want to make sure they're happy and they're okay and, and they're good. So we do a lot of enabling, but candidly, like they are so self-sufficient and know what they want to get out of it that it makes it a lot easier than might be uh, normal. That's awesome. That's really yeah. nice to have like salespeople who authentically have real relationships and deep understanding of, of an industry. That must be super, so valuable to the company. Oh, it's unbelievable. Like that was actually the biggest surprise to me is I came into Entrada and the average tenure of an employee is like got to be two to three times what the average software tenure is. And all of these people literally know every customer, everything about them. They love them. It's pretty fun to watch. And what does Entrada's field event program look like? Like all the smaller events, do you have a sense of like the volume you're doing? And maybe like, how do you think about the types and mix of these different events? It's evolving right now, to be candid. I mean, last year was our first full year of really doing like a full field event strategy. And, you know, it's ranging from everything to a baseball game to the Masters to we did F1 in Austin last week to the US Open, whatever it ends up being. So it really is kind of a broad spectrum. Again, for me, it always comes back to cost, which is how much are we spending at one of these events and what's the estimated payback and what's the payback period. And I think that's the evolving piece for us is our sales cycles are long. So we've kind of gone through the first phase or wave of doing a bunch of them. And we're going to start to watch how that converts over the next couple of months. And then we'll continue to re-up on the things that work and kind of cut out the things that don't work. But yeah, it's a pretty wide spectrum of things that we're doing, you know, dinners, sports events, musicals, whatever it ends up being. Awesome. Yeah. I'd love to end today's conversation talking about the Utah tech scene. So you grew up yeah. in Utah and spent yeah. your career working for Utah tech companies. And now you have a podcast. I think the fourth yeah. node fourth podcast node. that talks yeah. about Utah businesses. Shout out. Go listen to it. Thanks. What is the tech community like in Utah? And like, why is it so successful? Why is there this gem of tech companies happening in Utah? Yeah, it's interesting. Utah kind of gets looked over pretty often. I get why. Like we're kind of sitting in no man's land in Utah. We're not in the Bay or New York or Boston or, you know, Austin or wherever the tech scene may be. But 
what's funny and what a lot of people don't know, and it's why our CEO and myself started the Fourth Node podcast, is a lot of tech evolved out of Utah and has been in Utah for a long time. I mean, dating back to the 80s with WordPerfect and Novell, they were two of the largest software companies at the time in the world. And then you you fast forward, you look at like what Josh James had done with Omniture, which sold to Adobe. And it's why we have such a big Adobe presence here in Salt Lake City. And now Josh has gone on to found Domo. And it's kind of just evolved. I mean, you have Pluralsight and Aaron Sconner did a great job with Pluralsight. They went public and now they're taken private again. And you had Qualtrics who has obviously done really incredibly well here. And they've kind of done a similar path to Pluralsight, but on a different scale. And there's just a lot that's going on here that are not, not a lot of people knew about. And so what we wanted to do is just tell that story with this podcast. And I think, you know, why it works really well here is we have a really educated workforce. The cost of living here is relatively inexpensive compared to something like the Bay Area. And we have a bunch of really great go-to-market functions here in Utah. And so you build a great product and we have a lot of great technical people here. And then you have to go sell that product. And we have a lot of really great go-to-market people here. And we're even seeing a ton of companies outside the state bring people in just for the go-to-market function. And it's really fun to see. And we just kind of want to document the history and kind of the momentum of the state. Yeah, it's really cool to see like how startup ecosystems develop. And you just need a couple big outcomes, couple big companies that are successful to kind of show the way to develop talent. And then those people go on to start companies and do other things. And yeah, I mean, that's what makes the Bay Area so special, but it's really cool to see it happening in in places like Utah too. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. It's definitely on a different scale, but I think we're making waves, which is fun. And you look at people like Ryan Smith, who founded Qualtrics, and I think he still might be the chairman, but now he bought the Utah Jazz. And he's really focusing on cultivating things at a more national level, which I think is cool. But Uh, It'll be interesting to see how it kind of scales over the next five to 10 years. Well, thank you so much for the conversation and time today, Nico. If people want to follow up with questions, where's the best place to find you? Are you active on LinkedIn or somewhere else? Uh, I'm somewhat active on LinkedIn and that's about it. I'm the worst tweeter on earth. So you can go follow me on Twitter, but you'll probably not get anything from me. So yeah, LinkedIn's great. I'm fairly active there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Nico. Thanks, Alex. That's a wrap on another episode of Grow & Tell. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform, or find every episode at growandtellshow.com. I'm your host, Alex Krakov. Thank you for listening.